This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. We have uh, Louise Bassett and Jessica Enders giving us a talk on the UX that no one wants to have. Over to you guys. <laughs> well, hi everyone, and welcome to the UX no one wants to have. I'm glad <laughs> it's not the UX no one wants to hear about. That's very reassuring. Now, just a quick warning before we get started. So if you could pay attention to the warning on the slide, we will be talking about family violence as part of this discussion. If that causes anyone any distress um, during the session, please feel free to manage that any way that's best for you. And if you do need to leave the room at any time, we're not going to take offence. Um, if you do need to seek help around family violence, these are some very good contact points. I've got to point out that Neither Jessica nor I are trained counsellors or psychologists, so we can't assist around family violence matters, but we've designed the presentation so there's ample time at the end for any questions about our presentation or this work, and we're more than happy to chat one-on-one -on -one, uh, throughout the conference if people would rather have a bit more of a private conversation. And before I begin, uh, we'd likewise like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their elders past and present, and also any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today and their elders past and present. So what we're going to cover today in the UX no one wants to have is really about how to do effective user research in a challenging or sensitive policy context. We're going to introduce ourselves and the project we worked on together, as well as a little bit about family violence, before we zoom in on the three things we found critical to making this user research a success. We'll briefly touch on outputs and outcomes from the project before handing over to you for questions. So I'm Louise Bassett. I'm the Manager of Strategy and Innovation at the Neighbourhood Justice Centre, or the NJC as it's locally known. It's a community justice centre in inner city Melbourne for people who aren't from Victoria. Uh, based in Collingwood. And with me here today is Jessica Enders, who's the principal at Formulate Information Design. So she specialises in making forms effective, efficient and satisfying for the user. So we engaged Jessica to work with us on the project I'll be talking about. So just a little quick snapshot about the Neighbourhood Justice Centre. If any of you are Collingwood locals, you would have seen the Neighbourhood Justice Centre and the the photo on the left um, on Wellington Street, right behind the Tote Hotel and Circus Oz. There's a glimpse on the right-hand side photo of the courtroom uh, within our centre. You'll notice from the design that it's been purpose-built to be a lot more open and transparent and less intimidating and formal than a traditional Australian courtroom. But that's what goes on inside the building. What goes on outside the building in our work with community is, I would say, in some ways, much more important. Um, community engagement sort of a fundamental premise on which we're built. 
Community justice centres are about trying to put clients and community at the centre of the way justice system works. So the photo in the, in the middle is from one of our White Ribbon Day um, events. I think it was last year. One of my colleagues in the room, Anthony, helped organise this where local men in Yarra um, came together to make a pledge to stand up to family violence. So as I was saying, this project relates to family violence. Now, I'd like you all to do a quick exercise with me. In the centre aisle of the row of seats that you're sitting in, there are numbers posted on the end. So if you could all find your number for your row, and then if it's divisible by four, could you please stand up? So it should be the, the fourth, eighth and twelfth rows. So great. Thanks, everyone. It's not a math um, test. <laughs> <laughs> so have a look around. So if you took it that every seat was filled and this audience represented Australia, then the people standing represent the number of women in Australia who've experienced violence from a partner or a former partner. So that's one in every four. So that gives you some idea of the sort of prep... Sorry. Thanks for your cooperation. Sit down there. Such an obedient audience, really nice. <laughs> so that gives you some idea of the prevalence of family violence in Australia. But in Victoria, um, family violence is actually broader than just partners or former partners. It also includes anyone you consider to be a family member. So in a snapshot way, the easiest way to define it is where a family member or someone you consider to be a partner or a former partner uses a pattern of behaviour towards you that's controlling, coercive or harmful in order to dominate you or to force you to behave in a certain way. Some of the types of behaviours that are recognised as constituting family violence include well-known things like physical abuse and sexual abuse, but others aren't so well known like emotional and psychological abuse, financial and economic abuse. So to give you a few examples, it can be things like stalking, monitoring and um, sort of basically putting you under surveillance in your movements and also the technology you use. It can be things like forcing you to take on debt you don't want to have. It can be things like harming or threatening to harm a beloved pet. It can be children seeing, hearing or otherwise being exposed to the effects of family violence. So they're just a few examples and there's a really broad range of behaviours that can fit under the definition. But what they've all got in common is they're all tools to try and gain control over you. We often find that people experiencing family violence, if, if there's no physical violence involved, sometimes they're not aware they're experiencing it. But we know from research that things like controlling and obsessive behaviour are real risk factors for things like homicide. Family violence, um, from this very sobering statistic here, is having a major impact on Australian society. It's also in Victoria the leading preventable contributor to death, disease and disability of Victorian women aged 15 to 44 and it's also the principal cause of homelessness for Victorian women and children. So if you're unfortunate enough to be experiencing family violence, what can you do? Well, you can seek the protection of a family violence intervention order. 
So this is probably better known in community as a restraining order against someone who's committing family violence against you. So what happens with a family violence intervention order is that the court makes that order and then the police can enforce it. And it really sets out rules for how the person who's committing the violence can behave or not, or things they can't do. So in order to um, apply for an intervention order, you need to fill out a form. And the form itself is paper-based, it's really long, it's complex, and it's full of legalese. So in 2015, the Neighbourhood Justice Centre trialled an online version of this form, as this video I'm about to show you explains. It can be difficult to reach out when family violence happens to you. But your protection is now one click closer. If you live in the city of Yarra, you can apply for an intervention order using the Neighbourhood Justice Centre's new online family violence intervention form. Applying for protection is simple and secure. Because you apply online, you choose the time and place that suits you. Using whatever you have at your fingertips, tablet, phone or computer. Use the NJC Online Family Violence Intervention Form. You're in safe hands. If you're experiencing family violence and live in the city of Yarra, visit njcforms.courts.vic.gov.au. So, as you can see, at Naval Justice Centre, no matter what your role, you can't escape being dragged into a bit of silent acting. So, <laughs> uh, so for this project, we engage Jessica and Formulate to assist us with user research and basically using that to assess the online form and find key areas for improvement. But the challenge with this work was that we obviously couldn't perch on the shoulder of family violence survivors while they're filling out the form and observe how they're doing it, even though that would have been ideal. So what we tried to do was get as close to a real-life situation as we could. We recruited people who'd applied for a family violence intervention order in the last 12 months, and we got them to use their real-life situation they'd had when they originally applied, used that as their story, and we got to know that story really well. Then we observed them as they used the online form and asked a series of questions at the end to assess how well it met their expectations, how satisfied they were with it, and how functional it was. So there's obviously a lot more we could share about the project and family violence. We could go on about that just for today's session, but we want to jump to the three critical things we found that helped to make this work effective. So they were effort, uh, trust, and respect. And you may be thinking... Well, we use that in all the user research we do. But I think when you're dealing with a sensitive or challenging topic area like family violence and conducting this research, these three items come into sharper focus and probably are a lot messier in implementation. So we want to give you some of the detail of that and some tips you might be able to use in other settings where you're dealing with sensitive policy topics or hard-to-reach users. So I'll hand over to Jessica now to look at the first two. Thanks, Louise. 
microphone working? Can you hear me up the back? <laughs> Give me a wave here. So I'm going to talk about effort first of all. Now, if you've ever done any user research, you'll know that it does require some effort. Participants don't just rock up to your office. They've got their feedback all prepared for you, tied up neatly in a bow and say, here you go, this is just what you need, all my insights. But um, what I felt made was a contributor to the success of this project was really a willingness and an ability to go the extra mile above what you normally do for user research. Um, and one of the ways that I did that on this project was by taking on board the recruitment myself. So rather than using a professional recruiter, um, I did the recruitment and there were some reasons for that. First of all, if, um, if we used a professional recruiter and they have uh, their lists of members of the general public that are willing to participate in research, to find people who had applied for a family violence intervention order in the last 12 months in the city of Yarra was going to be like a needle in a haystack. And once they have to go beyond their pre-collected lists of potential participants and do things like cold calling, uh, the costs increase significantly. And uh, as you may, some of you may know, recruiters do charge proportional to the time and effort it's going to take them to get the number of participants that you need. So we, we did have a fairly tight budget on this project, uh, but even if we'd had a, an extremely generous one that, I don't know, Sergey Brin decided to give us wads of cash for, it still probably would have been too expensive to use a professional recruiter. Um, having said that, uh, recruitment is tough. I don't know about you, but sometimes I might get a little bit frustrated with my recruiters. Like maybe they send me a participant who doesn't quite fit the profile, or I have to chase them for updates on how many you know people they've recruited so far. After doing, I have done recruitment for myself before, but after doing it on this project, I just it just sort of reminded me that you know it's a difficult job and uh, to be a bit kinder to them in the future. For us to get the right participants for this research, um, I noticed that what we really needed was flexibility. Uh, and that was flexibility in a lot of different realms. First of all, I needed to um, enable contact to happen between me and the potential participants by whatever means um, they wanted. So there was the usual email and phone, but I actually found a lot of people wanted to do texting. So um, we'll explain in a moment how there was some intermediaries that assisted us. Um, when they got my contact details from the intermediary, like a lot of people wanted to settle the time and place via text. Uh, you also have to be flexible about when. So it wasn't quite 24-7. Uh, I did sleep occasionally, <laughs> um, but I made sure I was available. I answered the phone. Um, basically when I was awake, and that included, you know, nights and weekends. And I was even in Queensland for a week of holidays <laughs> in the middle of the project because it stretched out a bit longer than we'd anticipated um, and took a few calls there and arranged a few interviews while I was there because they're so precious, these participants. You want to do everything you can to catch them if they sort of come, come your way. 
Uh, I did have um, one participant who didn't have access to a phone and I'd been doing my screening because, you know, people would meet those initial criteria of having applied for the Family Violence Intervention Order but there were other things that we needed to screen for. For example, if they are the sort of person who doesn't ever use the internet, then they would typically use the paper form which was going to continue to be available to people at the court and the online form isn't, you know, testing the online form with them, it's not really a good fit. Um, so I was doing my screener over the phone as well as explaining what the research would involve and helping people feel comfortable that, you know, this is going to be a safe experience and so forth. And this one person who didn't have a phone and didn't have access to a phone. So uh, I made a self-service online screener just for that one participant um, so that uh, I could capture them in the process. And that's the sort of things that you, you know, that's the extra mile that you wouldn't necessarily do in another situation. You needed to, I needed to be flexible about when to run the sessions. Some days there'd be big gaps of days in between or someone would um, sign up to come at nine but then have a child care issue or something like that and couldn't come at nine. Could I make it 11? So uh, you sort of have to let go of that idea of, this is my schedule, this is when I'm going to slot people in. It was much more when suits you, when can you come? Um, so doing, doing all that flexibility and making those phone calls and being available on holidays and so forth, what was the outcome? Well, in five weeks of elapsed time, so I wasn't doing recruitment seven hours a day, you know, five days a week for five weeks. I was doing other work at the same time, but it took that much time for things to flow through to me and to follow up with people. We achieved, we conducted six interviews. We could have done eight. We had enough people come through, but we found that we were really getting the same feedback um, and the same, it was very consistent, the insights we were yielding from the interviews. So we decided to use that, like, because I was hired by the NJC, um, rather than have them, them have me do two more interviews, they were going to then engage me to help a bit with the improvements to the form afterwards, so use the resources that way. Um, and that was from 28 potentials. And there was a whole number of reasons why people didn't end up participating, whether it was that they didn't meet the profile, some people lived a long way away, even though they had applied at that court and all sorts of different things. The usual as well of people turning up, you know, signing up and then not turning up, all that sort of thing that happens. We didn't have any data like this when we were planning the project and so we didn't know how long it would take us to get, like, are we going to get no one? Are we going to get 50 people? What's going to happen? So I really wanted to share this with all of you so that even though you might not be working in the exact same context, you have a bit of a sense that if it is a challenging group of people that you're hard to find, hard to recruit, this is maybe what you should sort of plan for. So we got these people um, and we went to all that extra effort. But if we didn't have the element of trust, we still would, we would have ended up with no interviews. It's a really important point um, that people in the community trust the NJC. It is more than the building, it's active in the community. Um, they have other activities inside the building besides the court, so um, sometimes there'll be community meetings or mediations or what have you. So what that meant was when we did things like put up 
a, a Facebook post under the MJC account that actually yielded a response. Your organisation might be in a different position, um, but anything you can do to build up that sense of trust in the community is going to help you when you're doing the recruitment of these participants. Um, similarly, we uh, put up posters around the centre, the NJC, and we got almost a third of our participants just from those posters. We, I'm not a poster designer. I'm great with forms. Posters, passable. Um, <laughs> but we worked together um, with Louise, you know, knowing the subject matter and knowing the people who are in the centre um, and really worded it to try and make it sound like... to really emphasise, I suppose, that point of the reason why we're doing this is so that when you need help and need to apply for this order, you're not going through a really painful process. But even more important than the posters and the Facebook post were organised... There's a, there's a network of organisations called the Yarra Family Violence Network, and it's made up of organisations that provide support services to people experiencing family violence or, or are related in some way, so like refuges, the police, advisory services and so on. Because those services had worked in the NJC as part of this network and they all worked together for quite a long time and had a strong relationship, when the NJC was doing this, those services were willing to put the posters up in their places, so at police stations or in social housing facilities and so on. Even more important, uh, well, I suppose two particularly important partners uh, within the network were Berry Street and the Victoria Police. Berry Street provide services all around supporting families and children um, for safety and, and, and have a healthy childhood um, and obviously work very closely uh, with people who are survivors of family violence. Because um, just as an aside, you know, we've talked a lot about number of women, one in four women or, you know, one woman per week. But men do experience family violence as well. It is much higher proportions amongst women. Um, and, you know, children uh, are often involved then uh, in, in the experience. So what happened with these two partners is because they're having contact with these survivors daily, they were actually willing to do some recruitment on our behalf, which is just gold. So um, when someone was actually, say, coming to court or getting support services at Berry Street, the staff member at Berry Street or the police prosecutor would say, look, this research is happening. Um, they're trying to make it an even less, you know, minimise the pain as much as possible. Would you be interested in participating? We got over half of our participants just from those two. And so if there are any sort of intermediaries or partners that you can leverage that are at the coalface, as it were, with your participants, then that's something we would recommend. Now, having done that, we obviously wanted to minimise the burden on them as much as possible. We don't want to erode that trust. Uh, so we created a little um, sign-up sheet here on the slide uh, that was just a little word-based thing that asked the fewest possible questions for them to be able to pass the person then on to me to do the recruitment. Did it in Word so that... Um, because we knew they would have word in their organisations. They could do it then electronically if they wanted. They could also print it out, fill it out by hand. 
they, um, some referrers, um, sorry, some participants, you know, they, the referrer, so that's the partner like Berry Street or Victoria Police, would just give them the form, they would fill it out, they could fax it to us, they could email, they could scan, whatever they want to do. And we keep the questions to an absolute minimum and use plain language as much as possible, trying to, through every contact and every touch point, convey a sense of you can trust us and this is going to be a safe experience for you. Um, which brings me to the next point, which is that um, no matter what, like no matter what I might want to achieve or ask about or get out of the research, safety and security, the participants had to come first. Um, Louise will talk about it a bit more in a moment, but you know these are people who have experienced something really traumatic, and um, while we have good aims in improving this form, we can't you know, create more damage in the process. Um, some of the things... Cha I changed some of the research um, in light of this. Uh, with the recruitment, I'd already talked about using whatever contact method they felt comfortable with. It also included um, not leaving a message on people's phone unless they had said explicitly that it was OK for me to do so. Because one of the ways... Um, some people experience family violence is their technology being um, being tracked uh, and messages being listened to and if it's someone strange and um, and that could put the person at risk. Um, another thing I did which was challenging from a research point of view is I didn't record the sessions at all. So there was no video, no screen capture, no audio. I felt like... It, you know, I usually when I record, I say, you know, this I have a consent form and I explain that the recording's only going to be used for the purposes of the research um, and it's destroyed and under the privacy principles and all that. But I just felt like I wasn't sure that that was going to provide enough reassurance to people given the subject matter because they're going to be telling me their story. Um, because the form, we're not really going to talk about the form today because we feel the project itself is of the most interest. Um, but to grant an order, um, the, the, the magistrate needs to know what's happened um, and in, in some detail. So that has, that's what the form asks about and so I, that had to come up in the session. So it did mean that uh, at the end of the session, as soon as I'd you know, said, done the wrap-up and said thank you and walked them out and everything, madly came back to my computer and typed out everything, I, like just a brain dump of what had happened, try and capture as much as I could um, before the next session. There was one... Like, you know, this is a pretty heavy topic, right? <laughs> like, uh, congratulations on coming to the presentation about a heavy topic and we were doing research about a heavy topic and Louise works in this space every day. Um, there was one nice little moment of brevity where uh, I asked the participants to, you know, use your real story and I, I did the whole setup and um, got them t telling me about their experience and what had happened um, because what we wanted them to do is imagine that say they had applied in May this year because such and such had happened, I'd say, like, OK, I want you to go back to May, in your mind to May this year and that's happened and this has happened and you think you, you're going to do this. Um, 
and then fill it out as if you were really filling it out. Um, but you can, if you want, change the addresses of people. You don't need the actual address. You can fudge the number or whatever. And, and people's names. You don't have to put the real name down. But other than that, we'd really like you to use the real um, information. Uh, so this led to more than one session where uh, the participant said to me... <laughs> <laughs> so I can say, call him Mr Dickhead. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you can. And it was really nice, actually, because it gave them an opportunity. Like, we're talking about this heavy stuff. It, made, it was a moment of lightness that kind of, you know, we could take, breathe in a little bit. But also gave them an opportunity to sort of vent. You know, they're telling their story, which is hard for them. But it's kind of, um, if anyone was in Ruth's talk just before... Talk about the difference between consultation where it's just one way, just information flowing from one party to the other, versus co-design where we're in it together and it's a discussion and we can see things happening. Um, unfortunately, the nature of the beast is that uh, these survivors are, are doing a lot of one way. They're providing information for the court, for the magistrate or for the registrars and it might not feel to them like they're getting a lot back. But I, I really got the sense that this felt like, yeah, I'm... Okay, yeah, I get to choose what the person's name is and I get to put it in. And um, it was a smart form, um, so it referred to... (laughs) You can see where this is going, right? (laughs) So um, the respondent is the person that the survivor says has has, um, committed this family violence. Um, And so rather than call them the respondent throughout the form, we actually picked up their name. So we'd come later on to a later page of the form and it would say, and uh, is Mr Dickhead now living with you? You know. (laughs) So um, it's funny how if you're human about it and respectful and and, um, just, yeah, it's funny how the little moments of connection, it actually also meant that the the sessions tended to flow really smoothly after that as well. you know, it was a little bit of a bond between us. So I mentioned their respect, and that's the third um, factor that we found really helped us be successful, and Louise is going to talk about that. Yeah, it feels a bit following on from a joke about Mr Dickhead and talking about respect, but I'll do my best here. <laughs> so as Jessica said, our third success factor was respect, and obviously that had to be the underlay to everything we did with this project, considering... Um, the nature of the participants, but what did that look like in reality? So with family violence, as Jessica's explained, it can be really difficult to get participants um, to participate in research like this. Often family violence survivors find the justice system traumatic to deal with, and once they've finished their business there, they don't want anything to do with it again. So we knew we needed to offer them a decent incentive to attract people, but also we really wanted to show that we respected them as experts in their own experience in the system and valued their time and energy in making this contribution to the research. So we offered a $90 shopping voucher to all participants, which we thought was fair and reasonable given that um, some of the participants spent up to 90 minutes of their time in the session. It also made it um, sorry, I skipped ahead there. Uh, also made it a lot easier for the intermediaries we were working with, the police and the Berry Street family violence workers that Jessica's talked about. 
because often they're gatekeepers in getting to these people and they can either sort of facilitate or be very protective of those people, understandably, because they're seeing distressed clients and wanting to prevent them from further distress. But with the incentive, they felt like instead of pestering someone at a really trying time, they felt like they had something to offer them. As the police prosecutor said to me, you know, for once I can do something for this person rather than just advising them what's going to happen in court. I can offer something up to them. So that really worked for us. Also, showing respect through being empathetic and particularly with family violence, survivors find often there's a degree of embarrassment and maybe even shame and guilt when they're telling their stories. They may have told it to a lot of people before and not been believed, so it's really critical that we believe their stories in research like this. We choose our words carefully so we don't cast any doubt on their experience and we listen really well to them. But I think also, even though we're not counsellors or psychologists and we don't want to step out of that professional role, we can still be really affirming in uh, responding to their stories, be validating in how we respond to them. It may even be something like commenting on their strength and their courage in telling their story and surviving their experience and escaping from it. It can even be things like saying, you know, everyone's got the right to live a life free of fear and abuse. So also fundamental to this work is recognition of trauma. Jessica's already touched on a lot of this, but many of the participants in our research may have and may still be experiencing trauma. So understanding that and putting structures in place to try and cater for that in case the research causes them any further distress is really critical and part of the ethics of doing this research. So we made counsellors available for participants. Fortunately, none of them had to use the counsellors, which was great relief to us, but it was there and it was made really clear to them before they signed up that that would be available. I think as UXs, you need to be really kind of aware of the fact it can have a cumulative impact on you too. Hearing stories like this day after day can really uh, build up and UXs can experience uh, vicarious trauma. So we made the counsellor available to Jessica as well, but luckily she didn't need to use any of our counsellors. But she did put in place some strategies to manage the work, so no more than one interview per day to give enough space in between interviews and a bit of downtime and just practising a bit of self-care there as well. But I think we often tend to emphasise the risk with doing research like this and any negative impact it might have on the participants. What we found really satisfying in this work was that some participants said it had been a really positive experience for them, telling their story in a safe and respectful environment to a listener who's got the power to then make change in the system based on their feedback. That's a really rare opportunity for family violence survivors to get. Hopefully it becomes more common in the future. But I think when we manage to pull this work off, despite the challenges, it's really meaningful both for the worker and for the participants. So hand over to Jessica now. So as Louise said, there's a lot more we could talk about about this project. Um, like details of how we did the facilitation and the form itself, do come and see us 
throughout the conference if you'd be interested in knowing a bit more. Um, we thought you might feel like we left you hanging if we didn't talk a little bit about outputs and outcomes. Um, overall, because you're all dying to know, the form worked quite well. <laughs> um, yeah, Louise and her team had done a great job, especially working on making the language much more accessible, plain language rather than legalese. Um, there were a couple of major things we knew we'd, we found out we'd need to change and a whole lot of little sort of rats and mice that would improve the experience. There was one finding, though, that was surprising for both uh, Louise and I. Um, this, is the, this is a screenshot of the form. So on the left-hand side, uh, it's the top of one of the steps. This particular step is contact details. And then on the right-hand side here, uh, is, shows you what the different steps in the form were. And if you can't read it, and you might not be able to, it's very small, there's 14 steps there. So from getting started at number one all the way through to save and submit at 14. And this is only part of one step. So uh, anyone have any ideas what we thought we might encounter? <laughs> what we were a little bit worried about with this form? Sorry? Abandonment, yes. We thought people might find it too long. <laughs> 40, not everybody does every step or every question necessarily, but usually 10 or 11 screens full of questions. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty big as forms go. What we found was really surprising is that actually people were okay with the length. And I mean, like, really okay. And when we probed, we found out it was because of two things. The first one was that the form asked them questions that they had expected to be asked. And so um, their expectations were met and the experience just seemed sort of seamless because that's what they thought it was going to do. Um, and then the other aspect of it was that the questions they felt were reasonable for the court, like things that they thought the court would need to know and so they felt it was fair to be required to provide all this information um, in the form. And I did things like measure expectations before we started and, and all those sorts of things to make sure it was really um, unbiased measurement of uh, the reaction to it. And yeah, people thought they might have to spend 20 to 40 minutes filling out a form like this. And it makes sense because it's a big deal, this form. If an order is taken out against someone, that person's liberties are restricted in some fashion. They can't just go about their business how they like to. And it's a, it's a court determination. So um, it's, it's reasonable that it be a significant form in this case. Obviously, though, we, we had and continue to take out anything that is superfluous. Um, the other thing is about not so much the form but the project itself. This is Nick Bomast, who's based in New Zealand. Uh, he's a UXer like us. Um, and some of you may know him. He has a product called Mr. Tappy, which is actually a, um, it's an equipment kit for doing mobile um, user research. He's the guy behind that. And just before the research wrapped up, which was uh, last year, just before Christmas, I came across a blog post that some people had shared on Twitter that he'd written. And in it, he'd said this, I've almost given up on delivering written reports for clients in favour of video or large-scale visuals. This is, the, this is the blog post. 
Um, and the slides will be these slides will be available on the website after the conference. Um, so you can go and look it up yourself. And he actually shared his technique for producing a large-scale visual to communicate research findings. And I really felt like this might be a good thing to trial on this project, and so I did. And you can see the poster is up there. We've got the physical copy here. I'm not expecting you to be able to read it. Um, we'll go through it at all. Um, what's... And I'll just reiterate, I'm a forms designer. Really good at forms. <laughs> So be gentle. <laughs> um, so what we did is when we did the you know, stakeholder presentation of findings, I got everyone was together in a room. I gave them a really brief summary of the methodology of the research. And then the poster is up there. And they had time to go and look at it and to read the parts of it that were interesting to them. And in producing the poster itself, it makes, as a, as a form of analysis for me, it meant really had to uncover the stories, the narratives that it's, that it's behind, that are behind it. They, so they had a look at the poster and then we sat down again and we just let the conversation go according to whatever people found interesting about the poster or the findings um, or questions that they had. And one person said, well, well I, I was really interested that you said you thought we'll always still need to have a person involved in the process and we won't be able to automate it from end to end. And someone would respond to that and the conversation just went and, and, and that was how the sort of presentation of findings workshop went. And I feel like the findings will have much greater stickiness and meaning for stakeholders because it was more self-directed um, sort of absorption of them or, or exposure to them and that, that then that discussion was also self-directed and so rather than getting you know, a thick report pages and pages of you know quotes of what people said and just a lot of reading that often just sits on the shelf or you know a PowerPoint presentation where it's just me saying things and people sitting there passively listening to me. Oh, my God, that's getting a bit meta. Um, yeah, I just got the real sense that I, th I think it works really well and I'm a bit of a fan. <laughs> um, obviously, I can continue to improve my design techniques. But uh, the other thing that was good about it is that after the presentation, we could, they could put the poster up in the NJC in a high-traffic area so other staff who weren't necessarily privy to the stakeholder workshop or what have you, can see it and can see what we found, can get to know the community better and it's that transparency as well of activity within the workplace. So overall, I, I think it's a, it was a success and I, I would definitely consider doing that for your own projects in the future. So what happened after all this work? Just briefly, to give you highlights of that, we applied for funding from Victorian State Government. They've got this Public Sector Innovation Fund, which some of you might want to look into through Department of Premier and Cabinet. And we are successful in that. So that means we can extend the online form to two further sites, to Warrnambool, a regional site, and to Ringwood, a metropolitan site. And also we're doing service design to look at the entire application process, of which the form is only a small part, so streamlining that and making it more satisfying for all users. More significantly, perhaps, um, the Royal Commission into Family Violence delivered its report in March of this year, so Victorians in the room be familiar with that, but really significant opportunity for us in that it 
it set out a specific recommendation that the form be available statewide to all Victorians within two years. So that was really gratifying to see the results of this project work paying off in such a high profile forum. So I think we think there's pretty good evidence that if you apply three success factors of effort, trust and respect, you can do really effective and meaningful use of research in challenging or, or sensitive contexts. So I just wanted to thank you all for coming and being such a good audience and also to hand over to you now for any questions you may have about the project. Yeah, thanks, Louise. Thanks, Jessica. That's great. I've already seen a hand up, so... Yeah, hi there. Uh, thank you for a nice presentation. Um, as a form designer, I'll directly ask you a question. Um, so when you're deciding on the questions for the form, right, uh, it being a very sensitive topic and... Uh, so what the questions, uh, so what was the analysis went into while asking what questions should be there and uh, how it can be presented? Because many a times when, so you started with a small form where you ask a person to, when you're recruiting, whether they're happy to be a participant or not. And when you had those uh, 14 pages form, so what analysis goes into having that the person, let's say it being a very sensitive topic, but let me a bit generalize it to just understand a general methodology in uh, creating forms or questions with the forms. Is that how you look at formulating forms and making it into different sections so that the person who is entering the data as well is happy and is inclined to go however long the form be? Are you, are you, uh, the, the, um, and how you are able to reduce the number of questions to get the exact data which you require? So just a... Well, I'm glad you asked, because I have a book coming out about form design. Beautiful segue. <laughs> Tell us about that. I do actually have a book um, coming out this well, in September about form design, and it does go into the process, so if you want some more details on how to do that, it's called Designing UX Forms, um, and it's out through SitePoint. But broadly speaking, what happens usually is the client has... They, they have a reason to collect the data and that to some extent determines what the questions will be about, not necessarily the wording of the questions, but there is legislation and established process at the court um, that says what they do need to know and then it's about sometimes it's all you can do is tweak how you ask those questions, the order in which you ask them. And that was something we looked at in um, quite a bit of detail about this. We weren't sure if having the story first would be good or having just the basic demographic details first would be good and those are things that you explore in the research as well. But, um, yeah, I, I just have to keep it short because we don't have much time and that's a long subject. But, uh, uh, yeah, the book has got some good advice. Yeah, perhaps that's quite a good time. I know there's loads and loads of questions. Maybe we should wrap it up now, otherwise we'll have no time for lunch. I'm sure you'd be happy to field any when this is... Uh wrapped up but yeah lunch is just being served out there and then we're back in here in 45 minutes so thought I'd better give everyone a break thank you we hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2016 for more presentations from this and other conferences please visit uxaustralia.com.au